Awesome. Perfect. Uh, thank you, Vlad. And uh, so without further ado, uh, everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy down here, Vlad. We have made it to episode 38, and we have a very large member of the community, mostly in stature more than anything else, um, as our guest today, uh, Jeff Winter. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to be here. This will be fun. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. Really appreciate your time. Uh, I wanted to start us off. So I know that you're very known in the community, especially in manufacturing automation in general, but could you give us maybe a short summary of your background? How did you get into manufacturing? Uh, me and Dave actually had a short discussion of you getting started in Kians based on your profile. So I wanted to <laughs> kind of get your idea on how that came to be. What was your experience like and what were your thoughts at the time? Sure. So yeah, I kind of have a, an interesting background and been in a, a lot of different positions. So I went to school for electrical engineering technology. I always loved learning how stuff was made and how it works, but I never actually wanted to be a practicing engineer. I went immediately into sales engineering. I learned very quickly that I like being out in front of a lot of different people, but still having that little technical flair to it. So that was the, the right type of role right away for me. That was all the jobs I applied to were sales engineering. Keynes was the first company that I had, which I thought did a great job of teaching me the base fundamentals about the industry, about how to sell, uh, just about all the things that I was looking for. In my career, I then worked for several different hardware manufacturers, all within industrial automation, where I got to see different flavors of different parts of the machine is what I would ultimately call it. Uh, and then the last stint of my career, I switched over to uh, Grand Tech, which was a system integrator where I got to learn about the services side as opposed to the hardware and software side of it. And that's when not only did I switch kind of a different angle to the industry, but also different positions. That's where I got to not just do sales, but I got to experience marketing strategy, a little bit of operations and kind of become much more well-rounded before I now took my most recent position at Microsoft, which is a industry executive for manufacturing, which is kind of like a, I'll call it a sales overlay function where I help support the sales team to provide industry expertise to the entire operating unit in the United States. Oh, that's a, that's a very interesting um, background and road, I guess. I, I picked up on one detail on your early career that I want you to maybe expand a little bit. So you said that you knew that you wanted to do something a little bit on the technical side, but also more on the sales and marketing side based on your personality. Is there maybe some like key factors that you could talk about that led you into like sales specifically versus pursuing like a very technical engineering traditional career? It's a good question. I don't know if there's like a specific trigger or specific point. What I found is that what I liked about the, the aspect of engineering and technology was the social side of it. So actually talking about it with other people, working on things with different people. I liked going to different manufacturers, kind of like the show, how it's made. That's how I described my job for years is I was like the show how it's made. I go to a factory, I learn about how things are made. They have a problem. I help try and solve it with them and see if I can convince them to buy it. And then I move on to the next factory and kind of repeat. And that was kind of a fun experience for me rather than uh, the only experience I had with engineering was an internship where I actually had to work for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on solving one single problem. And that was my entire experience. And I realized that that, that kind of wasn't the route I wanted to go. 
Yeah, and I actually I had the discussion with Dave about that too because I think like how it's made really encompasses I don't know why but there's certain people that are drawn to that show right like understanding how processes are done and just having that feel of again seeing something being made that you see in your regular life that uh, is very appealing at least for me in manufacturing and it's but it's not for everyone yeah yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But, um, you know, another thing that you mentioned was going from an OEM to a service provider. I'm curious, you know, what are maybe like if you can talk to Dave, you have a different question or I've got five people who have told me so far that they can't hear you. So, yes. (laughs) So if if you could, uh, if you want to check those audio settings, I'm going to slightly, I, I love the, the thought process uh, that Vlad has got going, and I would like to let him continue the thought process while we're waiting for the audio to, uh, to, to, to move. Can we talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing at Microsoft? Uh, I, I think it's ve- the industry executive role is very interesting. Maybe for other people who don't know what Microsoft is doing in manufacturing, can you give us a little bit of a description, a little bit of an overview of what Microsoft is doing in manufacturing? Sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. So uh, knowing that I am five weeks in, I'm still learning what my actual role is on the job. But in short, So Microsoft is a very, very large organization. Most people don't realize how tied they are to industries. A lot of people think of them just kind of like the computer software company, you know, Windows for the longest time. I mean, just to put it in perspective, the manufacturing operating unit in the sales organization alone has 800 people in the United States, just the U.S., just sales, just manufacturing, let alone the engineering support and all the other functions that go into it just for manufacturing. That shows how big they are in that field. And I actually didn't really realize how big they were until I joined in manufacturing. It's not the first company I would admit I thought of for manufacturing. Now that I've been there for five weeks and learned about what they do, who they work with and how they engage with clients. Yeah, they, they are big. And I just didn't realize it because the level I was playing was not quite at the same level that Microsoft mm-hmm. is, is playing. The, the other thing that I would add to that, which will help frame around Microsoft's point of view on manufacturing is kind of their <laughs> approach. So what I found out is they have a lot of market insight. They use companies like Gartner and IDC, Mm -hmm. and they have their entire own market research that they get from their analysts as well as just voice of customer. Because you have to think, everyone is a customer of Microsoft. Not a lot of people, everyone. Just a matter of like how much of a customer. So their market insights are incredible. And they put Mm -hmm. all this effort into identifying five key areas that they find are top of mind for manufacturers. And these aren't from one or two people. This is from the industry that they pull from. And what we found is all five of these areas actually right now are related to digital transformation. Now, Microsoft calls them industry priority scenarios. And we have one for every industry. Uh, I represent the manufacturing industry. So those are the ones that I'm familiar with. But these five have become the biggest areas that Microsoft invests in. It's how we organize our solutions for our customers. And they span the entire organization, touching almost every function in every department, which means they're big. They're they're meant to be transformative by their, their very nature. So the five of them are is transforming your workforce, it's building an agile factory, it's creating um, resilient supply chain, it's engaging with your customers differently, 
and it's unlocking innovation to deliver new products and services. And so if you kind of dive into each of those a little bit more, that's where I've gotten kind of excited about what I'm learning about what, not just what Microsoft does, but how they talk with their customers about these big transformative movements that you can have. So going to like transforming the workforce. You know, companies are looking to, to change the way that their employees work. And this was a priority back before the pandemic. And then the pandemic just kind of made it take off as everyone around the world, including Microsoft, had to figure out how to adapt to remote work and remote assistance of frontline workers. And Microsoft found out that workforce transformation really requires the use of technology to attract, to train, and to retain this next generation workforce. And and properly equipping them with the right skills to, to reimagine manufacturing in an industry 4.0 setting and to help shape a sustainable future. And that's really cool how they're looking at this holistically. And right now, as probably everyone knows, there's a tremendous amount of job openings out there. And not only are there a tremendous opening, amount of job openings in manufacturing, but the types of jobs are changing dramatically and fast and are not what they were even just three years ago. Um, mm -hmm. As an example, according to, what's it? Um, World Economic Forum, the top three fastest growing jobs are data analysts and data scientists, AI and ML specialists, and big data specialists. And you may even argue those are not that dissimilar. And yeah, that's kind of true. And so when you think about going, that's the number one positions that are out there, it changes your entire strategy, your business strategy, as well as how you transform your workforce to adapt to this new world. So that's really the, the first one. It's one of the most exciting ones for me because it's actually one of the newer ones. The one that's probably my big bread and butter is the building a more agile factory, the second one. And this is when you customize your products and your services for your customer and you innovate at the speed that your, your customers demand, which means you need an agile and a flexible and a responsive production process. You need solutions that help build this, this factory of a future. And by that, I mean like a, a complex ecosystem of self-regulating machines and factories that are able to basically self-optimize and customize output and properly allocate resources and kind of seamlessly integrate the, the physical to the digital worlds. And the way that you get there is really through connecting factory assets by adding sensors to machines and equipment to collect data and then monitor and adjust operations accordingly. And this is where you know the concept of IIoT or industrial internet of things plays a role. And then when you take that at a global scale and have all your factories communicating and visible to each other is when you can see just tremendous impacts. And that's really the, the big one for building an agile factory. And then probably top of mind right now, at least very recently, is the resilient supply chains. Mm -hmm. This one is about improving the, the service resilience and profitability through intelligent supply chain planning and execution. And this has just become a top priority for most, most companies. Um, IoT Analytics, a company I very much follow, uh, came out with their, what are the top concerns amongst CEOs in just Q3 of 2021. So like basically last month, that's how recent it is. Their top two issues are inflation and disrupted supply chain. And they weren't even on the list at the beginning of 2021, just yeah. to show how much that changed in just a couple quarters. And this is, 
especially important when you work towards building the Agile factory that we, we just talked about. So as you're kind of making more product variants and you deliver customized you know, solutions, your supply chain becomes more complex and multifaceted. And there's just, there's just a new generation of intelligent business applications that help you, you know, deliver the right products and parts and resources and services where and when you need them and achieve a good balance between your, your customer service and your budgetary levels, your budget requirements and enable better upstream and downstream collaboration across an increasingly complex supply chain. And what's cool is like, I have all these industry statistics on like the numbers that people achieve. And the one thing I've learned that's kind of fun and interesting, it took me a little bit myself to get to really, I'm going to say believe, is that when Microsoft comes out with numbers, for example, like com companies can expect to see a 30% reduction in expedited expenses, a 60% increase in planning efficiency, 10% increase in, uh, in reduction of inventory investment, the list goes on. Those are real numbers because they deal with all these customers. These aren't just like, well, market statistics of a couple people. They deal with all the manufacturers in the United States at one level or another. And it's this aggregate income. We're like, no, these are real cases. And we can share the stories of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, if not thousands that have achieved these results. So it's, it's really kind of cool for me to, to have those. Um, so last two, I'll kind of go through them quickly is that engaging with customers in new ways. That's a new one for me as well, personally. That means delivering new uh, experiences to your, to basically your customers. So our customers, customers, but your customers through being able to engage differently throughout the entire product life cycle. So for example, let's say you make a smart connected product or you're an OEM and you're able to use connected field service solutions so that you can get insight to do better predictive maintenance and minimize your customer's downtime. And even uh, like dispatch technicians and using skill-based assignments and empower technicians to have customer insights and real-time guidance. It completely changes the way that your customers, you can engage with your customers. And that's a huge area that I've never paid attention before that Microsoft focuses on. And the last one is um, uh, unlocking innovation and delivering mm -hmm. new services, which is around creating new business value through sustainable products and digital services. This is kind of like now offering digital as a service or mm -hmm. product as a service, which is a new way of thinking about things. You can leverage all this collected data from IoT sensors and field service and salespeople, even factories, supply chain to help kind of speed up the, the innovation cycle where now instead of waiting for customer survey feedbacks, you can just collect the information on what features are used most by your customers, what's not used and help with next generation you know, product builds that you're using. So there's a lot that you can do to be more innovative in that front. And so those five areas that we mentioned are really... They call it the viewpoint of Microsoft for manufacturing. It's how we start conversations to, you know, see where, where we can solve business problems. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's kind of what I've learned in five weeks. Before, uh, before Dave can uh, throw in a follow-up, I, I really want to say that it's interesting that it's looking from like a holistic standpoint, you know what I mean? Because we've had multiple conversation, uh, even on this podcast about the workforce. And I think looking at that, before necessarily looking at a technology that can solve the problem, obviously there are technological solutions is really interesting, right? And so I really like the way Microsoft has put those five core principles in mind so that you can start thinking of a business as a whole. But it's a really 
thorough coverage, Jeff. Really appreciate it. I think we're going to post uh, the link if people want to find out more. There's going to be additional resources. I know that the website goes into quite a bit of depth, you know, if people want to uh, read a little bit more about uh, those five key areas. Dave? No, no, absolutely. So first, I will say, Vlad, uh, we can hear you again um, on the internet. So, so thank you, everyone, for, for the help with that. Once again, this is the fun of doing a live show, not all that dissimilar to a live demo, as everyone knows. Eventually, you, uh, you run into issues. But no, Jeff, I, I think all five of those are very interesting, right? Especially uh, the major shifts we've seen in the last two or three years since COVID and maybe a little bit before COVID with the transforming uh, workforce and with the engaging customers, how we're very much less so like nuts and bolts machine centric and now we're much more to the how can we engage and transform and help build out a better more satisfied workforce so that we can continue to to deliver goals and so i think that that's very interesting and then also uh, i think it was unlocking innovation kind of the thought of almost as a service and that is something that we've talked about Vlad and I for, for a number of hours, right? And I think it's something that we've seen kind of continue to move in the ecosystem um, of manufacturing. And so I think that that's going to be very interesting moving forward. It wasn't more than four or five years ago with the thought of buying something as a service was almost like the cardinal sin and you offer it to a CEO and you just get struck dead um, at that very moment. And now it has become a, I wouldn't call it a norm, but it's certainly like a general offering and you don't immediately get dismissed. You can now have conversations about those. So I think all of those are very exciting. I think, you know, kind of all of those five points are are very much kind of emerging technologies or maybe emerging thought processes uh, within the entirety of the ecosystem. And I find the statistics you said about kind of the big data and the AI and kind of those are the, the three main uh, groups who are being recruited into the industry. I think all of those are interesting. It kind of shows you where the world thinks that this is going to go. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how we can take that data and those data scientists expertise and kind of overlay that with people who have process knowledge to actually try to extrapolate much of this out. Um, and I, I would imagine the next couple of years, we will absolutely make kind of marked uh, movements with all of those as well. Absolutely, but Vlad, um, I normally am not the one that gets to ask in the middle of this so please can i can i hand the reins back over to you and you can uh, can continue down the uh your, your questioning well i want to um, jeff i want to have a discussion around uh so i know that you're very active again as i mentioned at the beginning on linkedin and part of the i think a good uh, business strategy is to have a presence as someone who is talking about digital transformation starting conversations around 4.0. So I wanted to have a conversation around how did you brand yourself or I guess, um, how did you get started on building your reputation on LinkedIn? And what do you think it takes? I want I want to maybe tease out some uh, bits and tips for others who are looking to do the same, because quite frankly, I think that uh, the manufacturing industry as a whole is missing out on the opportunities on uh, on this platform. Absolutely. So there's there's really two different things to potentially talk about there. One is thought leadership, which we can dive into more if you'd like. And then yep. second is LinkedIn. And I view those as related. Some people intertwine them or kind of use them similar, but I, I completely separate them and have a different strategy for each. So thought leadership is about making you 
uh, branded the way that you want as a thought leader. We can get into the definition. I use LinkedIn as this kind of like overlay strategy for promotional purposes only. So what's new to me is LinkedIn. What's not new to me is thought leadership. So thought leadership is a topic I've been doing for years and kind of refining my strategy of how I can be a thought leader. What I've taken over this year is how can I promote it better through the tool or mechanism of LinkedIn. And so it looks like I'm extremely active in terms of the amount of time spent on LinkedIn, but I would argue it's only a small portion on LinkedIn. It's actually a bigger portion on the thought leadership. LinkedIn just kind of promotes the thought leadership, if that makes sense. I really like the fact that you corrected me because I think, again, I, I am making that same mistake of using LinkedIn as the primary tool, but I would like to learn more, as you've pointed out, about thought leadership and how, again, like how did you craft your strategy? Because, again, there's a lot of details along the way, um, and we, I'd want to dive in also how you changed that a little bit while you were at Grand Tech. So could you define, I guess, thought leadership in general, and then we can maybe have a conversation about how to build a, uh, again, a brand that is uh, around that. Sure. So uh, this was a, a challenge that I had when I was working at Grand Tech was kind of defining what we call thought leadership or subject matter expertise. We kind of use those terms more uh, interchangeable, but separating out that versus a technical wizard, which was my term that I like to, to coin. I wanted to separate out a, a subject matter expert or thought leader from a technical wizard. Because think about it from this perspective. I joined Grand Tech as a sales manager. That was, that was my uh, official title uh, when I joined. And then end up leading an operational unit in operations and having engineers report to me to try to build a practice around industrial safety or machine safeguarding. So how do you do that as a sales guy, having engineers want to listen to you, look up to you, respect you in terms of your decisions of helping them engineer, if you want to call it something. So that's where I had to kind of really differentiate to go, okay, you be the technical wizard, I'll be the subject matter expert thought leader, and we'll start to define those differently. So we're not competing with each other. We are not the same things. So I defined thought leadership as five things. And I'm going to admit, I got this idea from an article I wrote, a very short article by a guy named Jesse Tours. It's only a couple paragraphs that identified thought leadership as five things. And what I did is expanded each of those. And we can talk about how I did it and what it meant. So it said, to separate yourself out as a subject matter expert, you need five things. You need credentials. You need the letters behind your name that actually state you know what you're talking about. So for machine safety, as an example, I am a board certified safety professional and a functional safety engineer. Those are letters behind your name that give you credibility. The next is accolades, being recognized by peers in the industry as being a subject matter expert or good at what you do. That is being named safety professional of the year by American Society of Safety Professionals or rising stars of National Safety Council. Those are accolades. So you have your credentials, you have your accolades. Then third is network. Do you actually know the who's who out there, the smartest people? I didn't know the answers to everything. If you stump me, who do I go to? I know the chairmen of all the top you know, safety standards. I know people at OSHA, at the regulatory body. I know, you know vice presidents of litigation at several different hardware manufacturers and the legal councils. I'm very connected to that. So if you stump me on something, I have somewhere to go. I also knew the network of a lot of safety leaders in the industry, vice presidents of EHS at you know, particular companies. So that was network. <clears throat> 
Fourth is being an ambassador. Are you actually out there representing the community? Are you joining associations and societies, signing up for roles, rolling up your sleeves and actually contributing to the advancement of, of the industry? And number five, are you an influencer? And by defining that, I don't actually mean social media influencer, that can be a component of it, but are you actually influential? Are you sharing an opinion? Are you actually sparking a little controversy? Are you putting your brand and name on the line by making a stance on something? So in order to do that, you have to write, you have to speak, you actually have to you know, make your point, make your opinion on stuff. You can't just participate in a committee, you actually have to do something with it. So all five of those together is kind of how we define a subject matter expertise or subject matter expert and a thought leader and differentiated from the guy, at least with safety, will say that was a you know, PLC programming wizard who could walk circles around me and programming a safety PLC. Those were kind of the, the difference. And then I just kind of switched my career by changing the subjects that I had away from safety to industry 4.0. But my model for developing uh, myself as a thought leader remained consistent. I just became more effective at it. So I could switch subjects and become a thought leader in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, and that, could you talk a little bit about uh, that transformation, I guess, how it came to be, just so people uh, maybe put it in uh, context. And again, I think you've learned probably a lot about uh, building it up in the safety space. So it probably accelerated your, I guess, or shortened your learning curve, as you said, uh, to pivot to a different space. But still, I'm very curious about how that came to be and what was that process like? Sure. And it took years to make myself uh, a leader in the, the safety community. A lot of uh, trial and error and missteps and join this, do this, not work out, waste of time. And that's kind of what I refined as a part of it. And it was kind of a combination of me looking at my career path within Grand Tech at the same time as kind of understanding the, the company's vision direction, you know, for where they were looking to go. And what I learned through this is, I actually really liked safety. It was kind of a subject that I was passionate about is what they liked about me. This is what I'm uh, assuming is correct if you ask them is they liked how I took a subject and turned it into a business unit of the company. I productized a solution. I came up with messaging. I came up with a marketing plan, a sales plan around a particular subject being safety. And so we could define it. We could have a, a, a thing that we made, which was a bundle of services, go out and sell it, deliver it and repeat it for high value. And that's what I learned that they liked more than the subject of safety. I thought they really liked safety. It turns out they really liked the way that this was productized. So I had an opportunity to go and do that for multiple subjects. And at the same time, uh, address industry 4.0, this big, amorphous, vague, undefined topic, figure out what it means for the company. And at the same time, prove that you can help build other thought leaders, not just be the thought leader yourself. And that's what had... That's what took me to a point of having to like processize and define, how do I do this? How do I put a strategy around this? How, how do I do it quicker to get other people to do it? So the subject that was basically picked was Industry 4.0. And in December, I believe it was December of 2019, if you were to ask me what Industry 4.0 was, I had no idea. Like I just, I had no idea what it was. And it's, it's crazy to know that that defining moment and then kind of taking it on and less than three years later, 
I'm being recognized by Analytica as one of the top industry 4.0 influencers worldwide. And I would say it's more of a testament to how I define my thought leadership and have a very specific strategy for what I do rather than actually being the, the smartest guy on the subject. But I do think that I am you know, valuable to the community on the subject. So what I did was just shorten the time on knowing, okay, I know how to identify different associations to join, different standards. I know how to identify the network of who's who and where I can you know, insert myself and where I can and learn different things, gain credibility, what certifications, what awards do I need so that I can be that thought leader? Yeah, and I, and I think it's a very interesting uh, discussion subject because I think industry 4.0 still remains, I guess, to some degree, a vague subject for a lot of at least end users and everyone's still trying to figure that out. And I think if you associate yourself with the right people, with the right conversations, that's how, how you can help drive that uh, discussion and I guess that definition, which is what we can uh, dive into a little bit as well, because you're part of two uh, fairly sizable committees that are working on trying to define digital transformation, trying to define, again, Industry 4.0. I know that they have a lot of thoughts around it. Uh, what uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Because that does play out in your thought leadership strategy, as, uh, as you alluded to. Sure. So <laughs> there's different reasons to join different associations or different groups uh, as a part of it. So yes, I did join the ISO, the ISO Standards Committee, and then switched over to the IEC Standards Committee, mainly because it was just less expensive to, to join. There is a joint working group between the two of them called Joint Working Group 21, where they're together, two of the biggest standards organization worldwide uh, um, are working on smart manufacturing. And uh, so that group has been around for uh, many years, at least five, I think. Uh, they have three standards that they've come out with now. They're actually technical reports. And they're all around smart manufacturing. They have the first one, part one, which is terms and definitions. That took years to develop. Then they have number two, which is use cases, and three, which is for recommendations for cybersecurity. But this is a good example where I joined that standards group in order to learn what the definitions were, because I wasn't able to contribute right away at all. Uh, maybe only recently I'm able to start contributing years later, but I'm able to learn not only what the definitions are, but also see the different world viewpoints on understanding you know, the differences between how Germany versus Japan versus the US versus Canada, because it's an international standards organizations, you know, think about these things. And that knowledge became invaluable for me to then go talk to clients or build strategies around what does industry 4.0 mean. And this is an example where they settled on the word smart manufacturing because they couldn't get agreement on mm -hmm. industry 4.0 thinking it was too uh, country centric as an example, even though industry 4.0 is the more Googled term out there. But my big takeaway from that entire experience is they have a, I don't know what it is, 100 page uh, document that kind of helps mm -hmm. define all of this stuff, everything that you can need. But my biggest takeaway from this entire thing is really industry 4.0 or smart manufacturing, whichever term you choose to use, it's really in the eye of the beholder. It's really mm -hmm. about a, a strategy and a change in mindset to leverage and adapt new technology. So whenever I talk to someone and they have in their mind an idea of what industry 4.0 means, I run with their idea because it's all about what they perceive their future to be through this technology as less about an individual definition. Now there are uses to define and standardize on it, but 
defining that definition, it was valuable for me to go through that, you know, that committee to actually go, you know what, we can, we can leverage this vagueness to define it the way it is in the eyes of the customer and run with that. Dave, did you have a follow-up? Sorry, I, I have a couple, but uh, I want to give you a chance to ask a question as well, like, because I think it's a very interesting subject. No, absolutely. So I, I appreciate that, Jeff. Uh, I would generally completely agree with the concept of, you know, industry 4.0 is vague. It is different for everyone. And the number one step that I take with any customer is to understand what it means to them so that we can define it in the space of that company or perhaps come to an agreement within the three people in the room. And there are four differing agreements or it's similar to the, uh, the working group that you're talking about. But I, I would say that we've got a lot of SMEs and, and, you know, thought leaders or potential thought leaders who listen to this. If someone is interested in joining one of these boards or finding a working group, uh, do you have kind of a, a path or a best way for someone to figure that out? Uh Maybe I can at least share my insight uh, on kind of how Please. I chose, where I chose uh, to get involved. So I'm involved in, in several different organizations, each one for a different reason, all designed to complement each other around my thought leadership strategy. So first thing you need to do is determine what your strategy is. And then a lot of the elements will kind of fall into place so you can decide where you want to put your time, because mm -hmm. it's very easy to join a society, join a standard, join a, a group and just get buried in the details and then spend hours and hours and hours and then walk away going, did I get anything out of this? Um, so you need a, like a, a North star, a guiding point for it. So you got to define what your strategy is and what you're looking to get out of it. Uh, now, in terms of the specific ones, there's, there's two big ones that I have spent my time on in the, the past couple of years. One of them is um, ISA, International Society of Automation, and the other is MESA, and they are entirely different groups. ISA is huge. So they have like 35,000 members, 350,000 customers. They have like 140 chapters and 18 divisions, and they're big. And they are mainly a, a members-based, community-based uh, you know, group. And a lot of people that join that are consumers. They're ones that go to read articles, attend events. You know, they, they consume a lot of the information. Within that, there's probably about 1,000 actual volunteers that roll up their sleeves and, and contribute as a part of it. So I'll continue on that one a second. Then there's Mesa, which is a company-based membership. So you don't really join as an individual. You, you technically can, but it's designed more as a company-based um, membership. But that is a much, much, much smaller organization. They don't focus the same thing on big events and big, uh, you know, local chapters and, and the way that, that ISA kind of goes to market and sets their, their selves up. But I would argue that has a different set of people as a part of it. So if you are looking to potentially roll up your sleeves and develop some very detailed models and work through some very specific stuff and meet uh, you know, very smart people on the subject, that might be a very good fit for you. If you want to get your name out there and speak at an event and, and connect with a lot of people, ISA may be good for you. Here's an example. ISA, their, uh, their latest division that they started up less than two years ago is the Smart Manufacturing IIoT division, their last one. They've got like 2,500 members since it started just less than two years ago. That's a huge amount of people just in that one division that have joined just because they have interest in that particular topic. And they have like, you know, monthly webinars that they do. They write uh, many blogs every month as a part of it. They're just, it's a big group. If you want to meet people and 
and uh, engage with like-minded individuals, that's a great group. If you want to work on details and, and probably enhance your level of knowledge at a very specific level or a specific aspect, Mace is another good one to join. I, I may encourage both because like I said, I don't view them as competitive. I view them as complementary. Now, those were the reasons that I chose those two is because one had a huge access to be able to help with my networking and my ability to help with uh, accolades and credentials. So it depends on how you look at, you know, look at them as to where they can help. I don't know if that answers the question or if you had any specific ones that you were curious about why I chose or didn't choose. Similar to kind of Vlad's line of questioning, Jeff, I think that we could talk for 12 hours on camera just about this. So I'm going to I'm going to say thank you for that. You probably will have people reaching out kind of with more questions um, in, in relation to those. And I'm if happy, we can... to, happy to help. I'm a big advocate of industry involvement in general and advancing the industry. And so I will help anyone that has interest. But then I'm also very uh, passionate about those two organizations specifically. Absolutely. No, no, th thank you for that. Uh, let's, let, let's promise um, a flood of messages in your inbox, uh, probably from Vlad and I uh, as two, plus, uh, plus some other people watching. And I'll let Vlad kind of continue on, uh, on his other thought process. Well, I was going to say, I guess, uh, like, I'll be the first one to admit that I would, you know, be interested in contributing some hours and working on some of these standards. But it's not always like obvious, what are the avenues to kind of figure out, uh, like where to join, how to be part of these conversations. And I think, as we were talking earlier, it's very important, because it is going to shape a lot of where manufacturing is headed in the next, you know, two to a decade years. So it, it, I think it's very important if you're looking to make an impact in what it's going to become to be part of these conversations for sure, Jeff. So and I, that's part of the, the learning curve is I did it both for safety and switching to industry 4.0. I had to insert myself everywhere. I called up many organizations and raised my hand and go, let me join these committees, these groups, these, these places. And then I figured out which ones that I, you know, retracted from and go, ah, that's not for me and which ones I doubled down on. But Part of it's a trial and error. I just did it faster with Industry 4.0. It's not all my selections were the right ones, but I got to a point where now I'm, you know, kind of in my groove and able to make an impact, but it took years to get there. Yeah, I, I certainly don't want to downplay, you know, what it took uh, to get to where you are today, because I, I think it's a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of talking, like you were said, a, a lot of networking, understanding what different uh, parties are saying. What, um, again, like filtering out a lot of uh, the conversation, it's, it's very, very important. But um, no, I mean, uh, you know, since our theme is like emerging technologies, we certainly want to maybe get your insights, not uh, to dive into anything very specific, but what are your thoughts on, you know, where is the industry going? What are we going to see in uh, five to 10 years? I know that we've had... Uh, a very good overview of what uh, Microsoft is is thinking, but is there any maybe on the personal side, like what do you see or what would you like to see like changed or improved or just uh, be different in manufacturing? <laughs> uh, oh, there's a whole bunch of questions there. Mm. So I will focus uh, to start on 
the topic I find to be the most exciting that absolutely will change the world and manufacturing in specific here. I don't know how yet, but it will. And it's around artificial intelligence. That has been my topic of fascination and passion in especially this year more than anything else, because it's the only topic that I can think of that really is completely ubiquitous to every industry and to every function. It's the only one that impacts the guy on the shop floor all the way up to the CEO from every function of sales, marketing, engineering, operations, finance, and every industry. It's the only one. And there's there's two ways that it's, it's starting to infiltrate our lives, what I'm going to call it. And this is a uh, um, a concept I came up with um, with the CEO of Falconry as we kind of did a series on AI together, Nikunj Meta, and it was the difference between intentional AI and invisible AI. And I really like those distinctions because intentional AI is you making a conscientious decision to include. And I, when I say AI, it's mainly ML at this point, but mm -hmm. for you know argument's sake, I still like to use the broader term. But to adapt. Uh, artificial intelligence to specifically improve a process, all right, that you're looking to do. Intentional use, pulling in a company, whether it's Microsoft or someone else and go, hey, you guys offer these services, how do I apply them? That's intentional use. We're going to see that increase more and more. But the, the hidden one is invisible AI. It's AI that is being included in the stuff that you're buying that you don't realize it. Because now most softwares that you get are coming with AI, uh, you know, they're AI enabled or you know, running on machine mm -hmm. learning algorithms, uh, hardware to software to everything that you're getting. And now it's just infiltrating in your everything your organization does. And you realize like, wow, we are using this all over. We just don't realize that we're using it all over. So when you factor both of those two together, you know, it's just, it's going to completely impact the way that everyone works. Everyone does business. Now, on top of that, there's two main areas that I would view that people would pay attention to. And one of them is the, I'm going to call it the scarier one. And one of them is the one that we're doing all the time. So the one that we're doing all the time is using specifically machine learning to do better analysis for predictive purposes. So being able to analyze large amounts of data to give us insights on that, that helps us make decisions. Ultimately, that's what it does. And we're starting to use that. People feel comfortable with it. It's easy to dive into, get a whole bunch of data, run some algorithms. Ooh, I gained some new insights. I can make better decisions. That I think is gonna, it is already being adopted quickly. The other one is around making decisions for you. So this is using it to help you make decisions and then using AI to make decisions for you. And that's the one I think that people are going to have a hard time mentally allowing AI to do. Good examples, self-driving cars. You're not making the decision anymore. It's making the decisions for you. Now start to apply that to you know, your own finances, your personal world, or your business that you have. At what point are you going to relinquish control and be like, you know what, I'm not even going to be involved in this decision process. The AI is just going to do it for me. That we're going to eventually get there. It's just a matter of how and when that takes shape. I don't know. I don't really know when, but that's the one that I think most people are worried about, scared about, and has the biggest unknown. The other one, we still have the control as the people and we're using AI to help us make better decisions. So it, it all comes down to AI here to go, where do you think, you know, is the, the biggest thing in the next 10 years, it's going to be that topic.
I really, I really like the way you've described it because I think again, there's so many tangents that we can go based on that response, Jeff. That, but it's, it's certainly very exciting uh, for me to hear that. Uh, again, I think I also agree with you that AI is going to be of a big impact. I think that manufacturing is still fairly early on, as you said. You know, we're starting to make decisions based on data. And again, I'm going to draw from personal experience. I think there's still manufacturers who are hesitant to leverage data the right way, or I guess to even leverage it, I would say, at all. But uh, I certainly think we're going to see those progressive changes and the companies that will leverage data very well. And as you said, the first step is going to be for us to make decisions, and then it's going to be for the machine to make decisions. And I think those are the companies who are going to win in the in the long run, because I think, again, personal, I would say, like comment, I would prefer a machine driving me than a lot of the maybe <laughs> human interactions, because at the end of the day, I think we're personally slower to respond to dangers, right? Like there is a reason why a machine can make better decisions for us. And I, I think the same is going to happen in manufacturing. We're going, we're going to see, uh, as you said, machine learning and AI make decisions that are going to be smarter, that are going to be real time. And that uh, will drive to, again, like savings and uh, better performance of machinery. Dave, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on all of that? Because I think it's, uh, I absolutely agree with what Jeff has been saying. I, I love this, Vlad. I kind of want to pitch a segment that doesn't exist called More Manufacturing Hour or More Manufacturing Hub in which we go for another hour and Vlad tells us about the horrific Uber experience that he had that makes him never want to get into a person driving car again. Uh, but no, so to your point, Jeff, I, I liked very much what you're saying. I think that artificial intelligence is very interesting in this space. And I think, you know, it's something that people spend their entire careers and will spend their entire careers working on. Uh, we, we won't get a chance to talk about a ton of practical applications, but because I saw him in here, Jim Gavigan, uh, he was on the show um, earlier. He and I actually nearly a year ago went through and talked about some multivariant analysis on his YouTube channel, Industrial Insight. You guys can go ahead and check out that entire thing in which he kind of walked me through a, a very long example. I think there are a couple of hours uh, worth of video out there going through. I think it's technically more like on the machine learning uh, regression analysis side, but we took it, we kind of displayed it in a bunch of uh, very different ways. And I, that was very interesting to me part of the reason why we shared it out. And so you guys should go ahead and, uh, and check that out. Um, but now Jeff, it, it's one of my, uh, it, it's my second chance to get to embarrass Vlad today. Uh, so we, we don't have a sound for the ad read. So I get to ask Vlad to, uh, to, to laugh in an uncomfortable manner so I can do it. So Vlad. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, thank you for that. So uh, again, uh, we would like to thank Siemens for going and sponsoring the emergency technologies theme. Um, and, and I have a, a, a bit of a, uh, a, a bit of something that, that's almost embarrassing to admit. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about it shortly after this. So uh, uh, so Siemens wants us to talk about 25 years of totally integrated automation. Uh, so 25 years ago, Siemens established an end-to-end -end communication, integrated engineering, and data management in a factory for the first time. Today, TIA enables a smart uh, link between the production environment OT and office environment IT of manufacturing industrial enterprises. Siemens is working with and for our customers to drive efficiency and productivity today and in the future, uh, 25 years of TIA, and the beat goes on. And so my, my, my slightly uh, 
embarrassing thing is I, I'm sure at some point I knew TIA stood for totally integrated automation. And I can't tell you how many times I've opened up TIA portal or watched people use, do awesome things in TIA portal. And it's like, wow, I didn't know that it, uh, it worked. And it wasn't until I read this that I realized that TIA portal stands for totally integrated automation portal. And as I messaged Vlad shortly after I read this, it makes complete sense. Thank you to all of the German engineers who put something that was completely logical in place 25 years ago. Um, but uh, Siemens invites you guys to take a look at Siemens.com slash TIA. Uh, Vlad, any other embarrassing comments about me not realizing that TIA stood for totally integrated automation before we move on? No, I think it, I think it was great. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you for that. So, uh, Jeff, we're, we're getting close to the end. And as I said, we, we try to be respectful and generally fail um, every week. But we're going into the, the section in which we want to ask you some more like rapid fire questions. Um, so very slow rapid fire questions. We'll, we'll have a new graphic, slow rapid fire questions, but no. Um, so so the, the first question is we've got a lot of avid readers in here and Vlad is looking for something to uh, to go ahead and download to listen to again. Do you have any good book recommendations uh, for people within industry? Oh, uh, so good question. I actually bought uh, several books that I'm planning on reading over the Christmas break. So if you ask me in another month, I will have them. They're more on broader manufacturing and supply chain, okay. digital supply chains. But I actually did have one that I finished uh, recently that's right here that I actually, uh, I actually liked because I will admit this was a newer subject to me over the past couple of years, but it mm -hmm. was this book on... Um, it's just called Manufacturing Execution Systems and Operations Management Approach that was produced by ISA. It's only like nine months old. It's pretty new. And so it really addresses it in the framework of smart manufacturing. But if you're newer to the subject, it's, it's a great book. So I was newer to the subject and it helped me immensely understand that particular space. If you're a, a master at it or already have your, your Mesa COC, you don't need to read that book. <clears throat> No, I, mean, I, I would I, add, I, go ahead, Dave. I, I was going to say, I, I love that because for years I had people, you know, ask if there was some good, you know, MES documentation that they could read. And for years, my answer was always no, like people either know it or you can read a couple of white papers. So I think that, that that's a very good book in order to kind of point people towards. Uh, thank you for bringing that up, Jeff. And, and we're excited to, uh, to hear what you think of kind of your broader manufacturing books for your Christmas reading or for your holiday season reading. And uh, if those book recommendations uh, kind of make it into recommendations next year. I'll let you know then. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. I'm glad did you have a comment about the book? Well, I was just going to say, I think it's important, uh, even coming from like a technical background, it's not always, um, how to say it, like easy to understand those underlying, I guess, complexities of MES, right? Because as an engineer, you're usually very focused on, let's say, the controller level or the programming level and what have you. So I think a book like that is important for someone who's looking to expand their knowledge base, even from like a technical standpoint. So I think it'd be very valuable to a lot of our listeners. Absolutely. And when your answer is it's just math, that's generally not helpful uh, when you're trying to, uh, to help people build a system. No, perfect. So, so thank you for that, Jeff. Uh, so next question is, you know, who should reach out to you? We talked about a lot of things, but who should reach out to you, you know, either for you to help um, or the alternative? Who are you looking to, uh, to work with with your new role? Um, so with my, my role, it's, you know, it'll be an interesting one because 
my function is a advisory role to the entire operating unit of, of Microsoft for manufacturing. So there's seven of us that do this role to support like 800 people as a part of it. So I'm not directly accountable for, you know, any accounts directly. I will have some that I help to, you know, mm-hmm. um, help their journey in digital transformation. So really, if, if anyone has any questions related to how to apply the Microsoft point of view to their account, it's either myself or one of the other six that will help them do that. That, that is my primary function of my job is to help clients through that digital transformation journey. Um, other than that, reason to contact me is if you are interested in helping to advance the community, advance the industry, and maybe looking for a starting point, that's just an area of passion of mine. I'm happy to help people out. I like meeting new people and networking. And so I'm happy to connect dots or make recommendations uh, there for you. No, perfect. Thank you. And I think that kind of goes very well to, to the next question. The last question I have for you at the moment is, do you have any career advice for other people in industry? Um, good question. So this one's going to be a little biased because of the recency or recency bias of it, but I'm going to tell everyone that you, you need to be on LinkedIn, like whatever you're on it, you need to be on it more. Um, and this is based off of a couple of factors that I have kind of coming together. One, when I was at Grand Tech, uh, my last role, I was, I was leading the, the marketing efforts there. And so I paid much more attention to statistics of what's going on and how impactful and influential it is. Now, when I say be on it, that doesn't mean you have to be an influencer post all the time, but you need to be on it. Um, so basically, the pandemic changed everything when uh, it relates to how we engage with people, how you network it everything. So if you look at there are two main things that happen as a result since 2019 to 2021. One, people love networking and they didn't have any place to do it. Where'd they go? They all went to LinkedIn. Number two, people wanted to learn and there were no events to go to anymore to learn. Where'd they go? LinkedIn learning or content produced, uh, produced on mm-hmm. LinkedIn from you, know, you guys and everyone else. That's where everyone went. So because of that, it's now very easy to network with people. I've connected with tons of people out there in very influential roles that help me personally, professionally in every, asset, in every aspect of you know, my life, I'm going to say. Number two, it's a candidate's market. So make your profile very good, uh, make it thorough, nice picture, clearly outline what you do in there, what you're good at, what problems you solve, because recruiters are looking for people because there's more jobs open than there are people available. So even if you're not looking for a role, take the time to make your profile up to date because it's a candidate's market right now. And then if you actually do want to meet people or become a thought leader in the industry, you're not really gonna be able to do it unless you're on that platform anyways. I mean, simply put, the pandemic forced everyone and every company to be a digital media company and to be on digital, you know, have a digital presence. So that's probably the one career advice, whether you're a student or you're, you know, more senior career, you at least need to be on it. Like I said, you don't even need to post anything to be active on LinkedIn, but you need, you need to be on it. No, absolutely. I, I think obviously Vlad and I, the people with the almost weekly live show, absolutely cannot uh, agree with you more um, on that, Jeff. Vlad and I actually met on LinkedIn a a couple of years ago, and it's a great place to be. I would imagine the vast majority of people watching are already on LinkedIn, Uh, but that that is a conversation that that we have, excuse me, that we have all of the time. Um, Vlad, we actually have moments left uh, before we run up on the hour. Did you have any last questions? 
Um, well, first of all, I guess like uh, really appreciate your, your thoughts on this, Jeff. I think LinkedIn, again, as you said, is a really great platform. And I think networking has really changed. I don't think it's ever going to go back, uh, you know, to what it used to be, because I think, again, people realized how much, um, again, as a t uh, how much of a time saver it perhaps is to be able to connect to someone across the world without having to go to the trade show or maybe conference, uh, which could still be valuable, but maybe in a different aspect. So I definitely can relate to, uh, to that comment, but go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I actually thought of something else from the advice side for people okay. in their mm -hmm. career that complements the LinkedIn. Number two is you got to develop your personal brand. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to be a marketer in marketing, but you need to have a personal brand. LinkedIn is the avenue to present that, but force yourself to think about it. Answer two questions for yourself. What skill do you want to be known for or skills? And what knowledge do you want to be known for having? And that will shape the way that you interact, network, communicate with everyone, you know, based off of what brand you want. When someone says, oh, John Doe, he is blank or he knows blank. What do you want them to say for that? Is it a good problem solver? Is he a good salesperson? Is he good at a particular programming language? What is the thing that you want them to say? And that will shape what you put on your profile, how you talk to people inside your company and outside your company. And so develop your personal brand and make sure that it guides your, your decisions. Could you give us maybe some examples? Because I think uh, the questions that we're going to get is how narrow of a skill should you be focusing on or how maybe broad of a skill like a, or a topic? That really depends on what you want to be seen as. Uh, uh, like there's, if you want to be, you know, seen as a salesperson, then we need to make sure that your skills are seen related to sales. That's different than your knowledge. You know, you may be very knowledge, for example, on let's say industrial safety or machine safeguarding, but your skill is go to market strategy. So those are two different things and you can change them at any time. I had to conscientiously go through a, a personal brand difference from being seen as a, uh, a salesperson to a marketer, to a strategist, uh, then back to sales, you know, change the actual skills, but then the, the subjects change too. And it's okay to change that. But having that clear identified personal brand guides how you talk to people. Like I said, inside your company, your boss, your superiors, you know, others, your peers, as well as people outside the company, it will guide the way that you talk to them. Yeah, definitely something that I need to also, uh, Take care of that's uh, I think that's very valuable advice and highly underestimated I think by by many individuals for sure really appreciate that Jeff absolutely no no thank you Jeff and thank you uh, thank you everyone um, <clears throat> again this has been episode 38 of manufacturing hub with me Dave and this guy down here Vlad if you want to connect with us you can see us on manufacturinghub.live you can get Vlad at solusplc.com I am on dave-griffith.com uh, Jeff you got you guys can absolutely connect with Jeff and everyone else on LinkedIn um, if you're not on LinkedIn as Jeff said you should be on LinkedIn follow us on manufacturing uh, I think we're now the manufacturing manufacturing hub podcast on LinkedIn, and you can connect with Jeff and everyone else there. Um, again, thank you for Siemens for sponsoring this theme and their continued sponsorship of the show. And until next week, well, we won't see you guys live next week, but next week you guys will get the podcast and we will see you live in two weeks. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Bye-bye.